0: Amen. Thank you, Terry. Uh, so good morning again. Uh, we are in the middle of a, just a few weeks here where we're going back over some things that are really important to us that are part of our mission, vision, and values as a church. And so it's just a little bit of what I call like maintenance, you know, church maintenance uh, or, or cultural architecture for our church. Just trying, trying to make sure we're all on the same page about the things that we've said for a long time now are important to us. And as Terry's already alluded to, one of those things is church planting. And so we want to be a people fluent in the gospel for the city. And because of those two things, we believe that God could use a people like that to cultivate and ignite and cultivate a movement, a gospel movement of churches and ministries that renew Winter Haven, Polk County, and even the world by sharing the gospel in word and deed. And so that's really what we're after. And so we're taking these number of weeks to talk about what it mean, what we mean by a gospel movement. And this morning we want to talk about church planting, because there's something specific that's tied to that. And so we're doing it by going back to some very pivotal, some very formative um, passages of Scripture that have meant a lot to us and that continue to do so. One of those, obviously, would be Matthew chapter 28, verses 18, 19, and 20. And so if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, that would be great. But if you don't, it's printed for you in your worship folder, and it's going to pop up on the screen behind me in just a minute, and we can read it together there as well. Uh, But try to get your eyes on the text as we read these verses. Beginning in verse 16, we're going to read... To verse 20 there, Matthew chapter 28. Okay, let's read together. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus said, He came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. And the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I, teaching them to observe all or obey all that I have commanded to you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. So from the very beginning of Redeemer, when we planted this church in 2008, it had all, and it's never been our goal just to grow bigger and bigger, but instead to have a, an intentional strategy to grow through multiplication, to see this church, as it grows, by God's grace, become multiple churches throughout the city of Winter Haven and also into the surrounding cities like Bartow and Auburndale, Davenport and Lake Wales and so forth. And we planted a church in 2015, again, if you're new, You may not be aware of some of this story, Redeemer Southwest, and God did an amazing thing in that church plant. He did amazing things there. But then uh, God called the pastor, Jeff Skipper, on to another work, and that group, as it turned out, rejoined our church just before COVID-19, which turned out to be a great blessing. We tried again in 2018. We hired another church planter, but that uh, just really the area was not a good fit for he and his family. And so uh, that really didn't work out. And, and now, of course, we're doing it again with Mercy Hill, Tony and Amber Ellswick, planting on Highway 27 towards Lake Wales because there's a huge, if you're not aware, there's this huge uh, development plan for, I know you're gonna love to hear, another 15,000 homes or something that are gonna be going up and down uh, Highway 27. By the way, I, I traveled to Orlando. It took me an hour and 10 minutes to get to Posner Park from here Thursday morning. Yeah, boo, did I hear a boo? Yeah, and then another, it took me an hour and 40 minutes to get to the Disney exit on I-4. Used to be a 25, 30 minute drive. But don't worry, more people are coming. (laughs) Isn't that good news? Have y'all ever, oh, now I'm getting off the page here, but. We go to North Carolina every year uh, in October. And every year when I'm driving home from, from uh, North Carolina and sitting in standstill traffic on 995, I'm like, why do I live in Florida again? And a few years ago, like that, the answer came because that's where the people are. And you're in the people business, dummy. We're in the people business. God is in the people business. What a great place to live. God's bringing people here. There's a, there is I mean, that is a missional impetus for us. Because the people are coming here, and it's a great place to live. Everybody wants to live here. That's why they're coming here. But there's just explosive growth. And so we're sending them down there uh, to, 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 uh, to try to address that. And by God's grace, we hope to continue to try to plant churches, definitely in Davenport, maybe in a place like Auburndale, other places. But I think it begs the question, well, why? Why plant churches? Why make that a strategy? Why, why do that? And uh, I'm going that's what we're going to talk about this morning, but it's not, you know, I'm going to talk about 30 minutes, I'm going to talk 30 minutes about that when really I only need one sentence to answer the question, why plant churches? Because God has told us to. Because it's what God's commanded us to do. We're reading Acts together, and Acts really just describes a church planting movement. That's what Acts is. Paul and Barnabas going, we read this past week, going from city to city, preaching the gospel, and then gathering those who believe and discipling them and, and, and bringing them into a community and appointing elders over those people and then moving on to the next city and doing the same thing over and over again. But also here in this text, what many people don't realize is the Great Commission here is actually a call to church planting. That is my argument, at least for this morning. And so in these verses, there really is ascending... There's a sending of the people, of the apostles here, and I think by extension, us as well. And there's also a sender, and we want to talk about both of those things. The sending and the sender, as we talk about and try to answer this question, why, why be so intent on planting churches? So let's talk about the sending first, and, and that's part of the answer. Why plant churches? Because there's a sending that God has put into our lives. Look again at Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Let's nerd out for just a minute, if you would let me. Let's do a sentence diagram for a minute. I tried this in the office, it didn't go over well, so I don't expect it to go over well this morning either, but I still think it's kind of cool. But if you look at that sentence, if you look at that sentence there and take it in, so let's look at it again. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For all the English teachers out there, here's a riddle. There's only one verb in that sentence. No, it's not go. Go. See, isn't that funny? What's the verb? Make disciples is the verb. So make disciples is the command. Make disciples is the action. To make disciples of all people from all of the nations of the earth. That is the ultimate thing that we are being sent to do. The other words, the going and the baptizing and the teaching are actually all participles. They are verbal adjectives. They are descriptive of that work. Of the, they are descriptive of the people doing that work of making disciples, not prescriptive. They describe the implied noun, you, you go, make disciples of all nations, which by the way is a plural noun, you all together as a group, go, is what Jesus is saying, baptizing, Teaching. And so what we find is, you you all fell for it, the word go, right? It feels like that's the verb, go. Isn't that the big deal? The go there. But the go doesn't tell us what to do. It's actually more profound and more fundamental than that. The go describes the kind of people we should be in whatever we're doing. The go is descriptive, not prescriptive. Wherever we find ourselves, you could translate it, as you are going, make disciples, And I think that means a number of things that are really helpful and important to us. You don't have to leave to go. Sometimes you do. But you don't necessarily have to leave to go. Why don't you just focus on going wherever you already are? Have I confused you yet? You don't have to go to be going. The call to go is to rethink the way you live your life where you already are. Now let's nerd out even more, forgive me, but this is fun for me, and you're just all here to hear me talk anyway, right? So it's all about me. It's my world, you're just living in it, okay? But here's the thing. The word go in the Greek is in the aorist tense, and that's really significant because it describes a past action. So really, what Jesus is saying here, it could even be translated this way, having made up your mind to go, right? Having gone, make disciples of all nations. The going is the past tense. Having gone, having already made up your mind to be going wherever you go, to be intentionally wherever you are, to be a missionary in all the places where you live, work, and play at God's command, then you, you do the work that God has called you there to do. But you have to make up your mind about that part first. But the word go is also passive. And that's a real mind bender. The word go here is a passive word. It means that your going actually doesn't come from you. It doesn't start with you. It's not your initiative. You go because actually you've been sent by God. Martin Heidegger described human existence. He was an existentialist philosopher. He, He described human existence as thrownness. He said we are thrown out into the world, into situations that we did not choose for ourselves, and this leads to feelings of alienation and powerlessness because uh, there's, real, there's no evident purpose in any of it. And so James K. Smith has this phrase. He describes it as the, like the, 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 the experience of life in this world for somebody who doesn't look at things through the lens of faith is like living the fall but without Eden and without the eschaton. Imagine that. That you live the reality of the fall, but but without the remembrance of Eden and without the promise that God is actually going to do something about it. You experience all of the world's brokenness without the story of the world's brokenness, which the Bible tells us. The world as it is without the reminder that it was once a paradise, and without the promise that it is all being redeemed and made new. Now, that may seem like a lot of philosophical rambling to even bring that up, but it is immensely practical, because the existentialist said life is absurd. The universe is irrational and meaningless, and so the best you can do in light of all of that is just figure out a way to find a little happiness and live for yourself, and this is where this, see, the reason I bring it up is because this is where expressive individualism comes from. This is where the you-do-you culture, this is where the live-your-truth, this is where the follow-your-heart idea, all of it comes from this. It comes from this idea. But the Bible says, no, we're not thrown into the world. We've been sent into the world. We don't believe in thrownness. We don't believe that the world is absurd, that it's just irrational and chaotic, and there's there's no meaning to any of it. we believe... That life is full of meaning because we've been sent into the situations we find ourselves to. Into, in. There's a story that is being written for the world and that we have a huge part to play in that story. And so living for yourself, just living selfishly, you know, figuring out how to just live your own kind of life without bothering anybody else is not the solution to the dis-ease, the disease, the dis-ease. It's actually the source Mission is the solution. Sentness is the solution. So the way to find meaning and fulfillment is to be going everywhere you go. To be there on purpose with the words and the welcome of the gospel. And so the passage is calling us to make up our minds right now. Right now ahead of time. To be going. To be going wherever it is you actually go. Because it will change how you are in that place wherever you find yourself to be and so let's just just apply this for a minute in a number of different ways as for as long as we have time students let me students are here how can you be going as you go to school every day you have to go but how are you how are you going as you go you have to start to think differently about that whole experience. You have, to, you have to think things like, you know, okay, God has me here on purpose. I hate algebra, but I'm in algebra, okay? And I sit here in this scene in algebra, and the person sits in front of me, and this person sits behind me, and it's all on purpose. None of it's random. It may be alphabetical, okay? I mean, there may be a reason for it. Maybe it's alphabetical. The Beatties and the Bennett's would have been great friends in high school because we would have always been sitting right next to one another, right? I mean, but maybe so maybe you sit to, next to the same person not only in algebra but in science and history too because your names are sequential but that's not just random either that's on purpose too and so what's the purpose see that's what you got to ask like what's the purpose what what is god inviting me into here what is it that god wants to do in me and through me here and you got to show up and make yourself available to whatever that purpose would be so I was talking to my daughter Abby about this yesterday she She met a girl on the first day of class in one of her classes at Florida State. And they just sat down next to one another and started talking. They figured out they lived in the same dorm room. And so now, three days a week, they walk 15 minutes, they meet downstairs in their dorm before class, walk 15 minutes across campus, and then 15 minutes back to their dorm. And she's telling me about this girl. This girl's a mess. And so I said, Abby, she needs Jesus. And God sent her you. You get 30 minutes with her three times a week? She was like, oh, I've never never thought of that. God obviously has a heart for that girl. You know how I know? Because he put her in Abby's path. And that's what it means to go. But how do you go into the neighborhood where you live? Go there, not just live there. You have to say, okay, okay, okay. Whatever reasons I had for choosing this neighborhood or this house, yeah, I had my reasons, but there's a bigger reason. God has sent me here. None of this is on accident it's all on purpose and it means that he sent me to the people that live across the street and to the people that live next door and to be a part of their stories and for them to be a part of my story so how can i be the best neighbor i can possibly be and how do i think about how to reach out to these folks with the words and the welcome of the gospel in this place that god has sent me I mean how do you how can you be going when you go to the ball field or to the dance studio how can you be going when you go to church on sundays Or when you go to your community group, to be in all those places intentionally for others with gospel words and welcome. Now, that's the one thing here, but there are two other words. If you see there, these people that are going to make disciples are also told to be baptizing and teaching. And those are also verbal adjectives, but they are in the present active tense. They describe the ongoing part of this and... They are put together a call to church planting because baptism is the rite of initiation into Christ and his body, the church. And teaching is the process of spiritual formation by which, um, by which people come to understand who Jesus is and what he asks of them and how they can obey him in their life. Then that happens in the church, too. So the Great Commission is a call to plant churches. Tim Keller wrote this. He said, virtually all the great evangelistic challenges of the New Testament are basically calls to plant churches, not simply to share the faith. See, Peter Wagner said, planting new churches is the most effective evangelistic method and methodology known under heaven. So this is, how, this is how you make disciples. This is how you do the work that God has called us here to do. You, you make disciples by being a going person by being a person whose life is marked by going, building intentional relationships with other people in all the places that God has sent you, and sharing the gospel with them patiently and prayerfully, then baptizing and teaching and introducing them into the community of faith where they can belong and learn doctrine and develop character and habits that are necessary to obey all that Jesus has commanded of his people. That is how you obey these verses, is to be a person that's involved in all that. But we want to say there's a clear application to what we mean by church planting here. And so before I move on to the next point, let me just very clearly issue a call for us yet again to the work of church planting, because I think it flows right out of this. Tim Keller, he said this, and of course, he's been very influential on us and his uh, vision strategy for church planting has really, really gripped us as well. He said, the vigorous... Continual planting of new congregations is the single most crucial strategy for numerical growth of the body of Christ in any city and for the continual corporate renewal and reviving of existing churches in those places. He said, nothing else, not crusades, not outreach programs or parachurch ministries or growing megachurches will have the consistent impact of dynamic, extensive church planting. And that's data-based. It's been proven time and time again. The research shows, without a shadow of a doubt, that new churches best reach new generations of people people new to the area, whatever area they're in, and new people groups. And also, without question, without question, it's just not even debatable, church plants are more effective at engaging unbelieving people with the gospel. In most church plants, over half the people who are there come from it, from no church background. Over half the people that join in with that church, sometimes up to 75 to 80% of those people were not involved in a church before, whereas in a church like ours, 80 to 90% of the people who join with us are coming from some other church they're just moving their membership from to us church plants are easier places for non-christian people to get plugged in and explore the claims of christianity and we know this to be anecdotally true too we had a meeting just this past week in orlando with a bunch of church planters and one of them is pastoring a new church of about 50 to 70 people in downtown fort lauderdale this past year they saw 31 people in that church make a profession of faith to follow christ a few years ago here at redeemer we uh we had 30 professions of faith, and I about lost my mind. I was so encouraged by that. But then I realized that 25 of those 30 were in the 100-person church planting congregation that we had planted, and only five of the 30 were in this 500-person church here that I was pastoring. It made me envious. And so it's just, it's just obvious. It's just obvious that this is the way, and yet... Most of the people who do these things for a living say that something like a church for every 500 people, so one church for 500 people is really the goal. If you can reach that saturation point, then it really does, there's something that happens that, that leads to the spiritual renewal of a place where, where those numbers are, are being worked out. But, but here's the truth of the situation we find ourselves in. Before 2019, in Protestant evangelicalism, we were starting about 4,000 new churches every year. Isn't that amazing? In America, in the country, we were starting about 4,000 churches every new year. That's the good news, you wanna hear the bad news? We were closing about 3,700. So we were net gaining about 300 churches all across the country every year for about a 20 year span with a ratio of about one church for every thousand people all across the United States. But in 2019, and this is before COVID, something began to shift, something really, really began to change and Lifeway, the arm of the Southern Baptist convention did some research and their research showed that beginning in 2019 up through COVID, of course, really, really dreary in those years, but we haven't really yet fully recovered. Whereas before 2019, we were, we were planting about 4,000 and losing about 3,700 since 2019, we've been planting about 3,000 and losing 4,500 every year. And so with the, population increase that we're experiencing, it's about, we're headed towards a ratio of one church for every 1,800 people. And here's the problem with those numbers is there is a direct correlation between the ratio of churches to people and spiritual progress and decline in the areas where those things take place. We are losing ground. We We gotta redouble our efforts to plant churches because Jesus has called us to do just that here, amen? And he does it because not only is there sending, but there's a sender. Let's talk about the sender. Let's rest our hearts in the truth that we learn about the sender because there's so much that we can learn about God in these verses that can inspire us to the kind of life that, that I'm trying to describe here. And the first thing that we learn, among all the things that we learn, is that God is Trinity. Look there again in verse 19. He says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are very few places in all of the Bible where the Trinity is so clearly articulated. And here it it is Jesus in his words, so this matters greatly. But if you look there, it is a strange phrase. He says, baptize them in the name, that's a singular noun, in the name of the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He doesn't say baptize them in the names, it's the name. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is that there is one God in three persons, Each of those persons equal to all of the others in power and glory. That is the classical since the third century or even before in Christianity. One God, three persons, each of those persons equal to all of the others in power and glory. So there are not three gods. Christianity doesn't believe that. There's one God. The Father is not more God than Jesus or the Holy Spirit. They are homoousias. Forgive me for using the big words, but that that is the word that was settled at the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century. Same substance, same essence. And so you're confronted here with something really, really profound. J.I. Packer said, the historic doctrine of the Trinity confronts us with perhaps the most difficult thought the human mind has ever been asked to handle. But there's so much practical importance to this doctrine that God is Trinity. It really does matter. It makes a big difference. Let me just give you some examples. For one, because God is Trinity, That just very there's a straight line from the doctrine of the Trinity to the claim that love, because God is Trinity, love is more important than success. Others matter most. An outward faced life matters most. God is love in his essence because he is he is a community of people. Love didn't come later. It didn't come after. It wasn't secondary. God is a community of persons eternally living and communicating with one another in and among the persons of the Godhead. So what that means for us is we have to be a people if we're gonna live as image bearers of this God who put relationships first, not success. Seasons of busyness are okay, but, but don't spend your life being so busy that you don't have time for people. Nobody wishes for more time at work on their deathbed. They wish for more time with people because we've been made in God's image and God is Trinity. But if God is Trinity, it also means... That servanthood is everything because inside the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the persons are glorifying each other, we we learn from the scriptures. And each person lives to serve and delight in and bless the other and making the other the weightier thing. And so there is an an other's orientation in the heart of God. I mean, when Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for us, as a substitute and sacrifice for our sins. He was only living out in history what had been happening in the heart of God from all eternity. And if there's this other's orientation in the heart of God, then there should be an other's orientation in our hearts as well. But it also means we could go on forever, okay? Well, But there's a dynamism about being a Christian because there's a dynamism in the Godhead. God is a missionary God. He is a sending God because he's Trinity, So, the Father has sent the Son, and the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit. And so now, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have sent who? You! Yeah, us! Into the world. Just like Jesus said in John 20 God did not create the world so that he could be worshiped and adored by what he created. Because he is Trinity, he already had all of the worship and adoration that he needed. God created the world to share all of the love and the relationship that he was already enjoying between the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with all that he had made. One last thing. You have multiple divine persons, each one fully God, but each one also bringing the full being and power and glory of the Godhead into the roles that they play in redemption. So you have the Father planning, the Son, Executing the Spirit, applying all that God in all of this glory and beauty has planned and executed and applied to each individual life. See, the the doctrine of the Trinity is really, really important, but here's the second thing. Because God is Trinity, because he is Trinity, we can say confidently that he is both great and good. Look at the text again. It says the call to go, make disciples there, plant churches. It's bracketed, actually, by two promises, one in verse 18 and one in verse 20. Okay, so in verse 18, look there, it says, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore, go. Now, this is a clear allusion to the passage in Daniel 7, where the Messiah comes before God and is given power and authority in a kingdom. Daniel seven fourteen says that all people's nations and languages should serve him. The Bible fits together. Jesus is saying that that prophecy, from hundreds and hundreds of years before had become a reality. In his life, death, resurrection, and here his ascension back into heaven, Jesus is coming, or he has come into possession of the greatest power and authority in all of reality, a name that is above every name, Paul says in Philippians 2. And therefore, therefore we go, because the one who is sending us has unrivaled dominion his plans cannot be can be opposed but they cannot be defeated he knows every star by name he commands the sun to come over the horizon every morning every lightning bolt hits the mark that he has assigned for it the winds and the waves obey his command he holds the kings of the earth in his hands and proverbs 21 says that he turns the hearts of those kings wherever he will and if he can turn a king's heart he can turn your child's heart too There's no one greater. But there's also no one gooder. Because see, that's the second promise, verse 20. This one who has all authority in heaven and earth given to him, and therefore we go. He says, go, because as you go, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. There, this great God here is also a good God. And so the promise here is that even though... In Psalm 113, it says that he looks far, it's this phrase, he looks far down on the heavens and the earth. God has to look far down to see the things that we look up at. He is so great. He is so beyond. He is so other. He is so high. Even though he looks far down on the heavens and the earth, that doesn't mean he doesn't see. He sees. He knows. He's not aloof or detached. He is intimately involved in every detail of your life. The hairs of your head are numbered And so are your tears, by the way. Psalm 56 says that God bottles all of them up, that he writes them in his book. God has a ledger of every heartbreak that you've gone through. He's aware of every single grief, every loss, every fear, every regret, every disappointment. And David is meditating on that in that psalm and he goes on to say, this I know, that God is for me. God is with me. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. See how that works? I mean, consider the links to which the God of the universe has gone to be with you, coming all the way from heaven to earth and dying on the cross for your sins to reconcile you to God so that you might enter into the fellowship of the Trinity, that eternal missional friendship of sharing and support and love, and then then the Spirit coming himself to dwell in you, not just with you, but in you. Jesus said, I am with you, but the Spirit has actually come to be in us. It's as if God is saying to us, I'm aware of what's going on with you. I see the threats. I know all about the things that you're afraid of, and I'm not too busy to be paying attention. Nothing takes me by surprise. You're not alone. You're not forsaken. It's not all up to you. When your strength fails you, mine won't. When you get tired, I'll carry you. It's beautiful. And so the psalmist says, he says, great is your goodness. Listen to this. Great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. Isn't that great? Great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. Jesus is both great and good. If he were great and not good, then you'd have every reason to be afraid because how do you know if if he'll use all that power and authority to be for you or against you? What if he woke up on the wrong side of the bed one day? If he were good but not great, that would be a reason for concern too because he wouldn't be much help when things got really bad. But God is great. He has the strength to save. God is good. He has the heart to save. And for the person who believes, all of life is bracketed by these two promises. All authority in heaven and earth. And no matter what, I'm with you. All the way to the end. And that leads to the third thing, and then I'll be finished, I promise. God is also alpha and omega. He's the first and the last. Now that's from Revelation chapter one, but it's given as a reason to not be afraid there, even in all of evil's raging. And so we should probably pay attention to it because it's here too. Because notice this going into the world to make disciples and plant churches begins and ends with Jesus's work, not ours. And that's a really important point to make. These verses are a call to join Jesus's mission already ongoing. And that means that none of this was our idea. It started long before we came along. His going is before our going, which also means wherever God sends you, I want you to hear this. Wherever God sends you, he's sending you into something that he is already at work in. Wherever God sends you, he's already at work there before you get there. And that's immensely helpful to me, at least, to not take myself so seriously because I'm very prone to do that, to not feel like the weight of the world is on my shoulders because it really never is. I hope not because I would crumble underneath that. It's his work that matters most, not mine. And there's a certain freedom and confidence and lightness that comes from that perspective. The work didn't begin with me. And it won't end with me either because when my work is done, he keeps working. Y'all, y'all, I mean, I, so when I leave work, John, uh, my wife and Jonathan, who know me best, would probably, I pray the same prayer every day. This is my prayer at the end of every day of work. Oh, Lord, I didn't get done any hardly any of the stuff I needed to get done today. But it's time for me to be done with work. So the good news is, is that even though I have to be done, you don't stop working. I can go home and be with my family and not worry about work because even though I'm not working, you're working. And your work matters most anyway, not mine, let's be honest. When my work is done, he keeps working all the way to the end of the age. So my work is not in vain, even when the results are not immediately obvious. And most of the time, friends, they are not. It is so easy to get discouraged when the work is small or slow, when you've been praying and nothing is happening. And so the promise that Jesus continues to work and be with us all the way to the end of the age is a sweet promise for me. There is a a movie I watched recently called Life Together. I think it's on Amazon. It's about two people who endure incredibly traumatic events in life, but they find they're happy ever after. In the way their stories and even the hardest parts of their stories are connected and bring them actually to one another. And it's—I'll warn you—it's hard to watch. It's really hard to watch. Uh, I almost—I almost gave up because it was so hard to watch. And that's kind of the point, because that's how life can feel. It's how life can feel when you're in the middle of the story, but towards the end of the of the movie, as you start to get a sense of, oh, this is this is all going to resolve. There's a monologue that captures the lesson of one of the characters. It one of the characters just says this: Life brings you to your knees. It brings you lower than you can think, than you think you can go. But if you stand back up. And if you move forward, if you go just a little bit further, beyond that place of being brought to your knees, you will always find love. Now, I find it fascinating because it's a perfect example of the way we're cross-pressured in our culture. Most people don't believe in God anymore, but we can't let go of the idea that life or the universe... Or something is somehow putting all of the pieces of our lives together into something beautiful. And the truth is, without a God that is both inexhaustibly great and inexhaustibly good, the line from the end of that movie is just silly sentimentalism. That can't be trusted at all. But if there is a God who says, all authority is mine. And who also says, I'm going to be with you all the way to the end of things. Well, then it's not silly. It's actually true the movie reminded me of an Andrew Peterson song, After the Last Tear Falls, which is based on the truth that God is both Alpha and Omega. And so Andrew Peterson says, he says, after the last tear falls, after the last secrets told, after the last bullet tears through flesh and blood and bone, after the last child starves and the last girl walks the boulevard, after the last year that's just too hard, there's love. He goes on, in the end... The end is oceans and oceans of love and love again. We'll see how the tears that have fallen were caught in the palms of the giver of love and the lover of all, and we'll look back on these tears as old tales. It's a beautiful song. If Jesus is Alpha and Omega, it means that that line in that song is true. In the end, the end is oceans and oceans of love. Isn't that great news? Hello? Okay, thank you. Just checking. So what's the takeaway? If you notice there, I I just put it this way, be single-hearted. And I say it that way because it's interesting in chapter 28, verse 17, it says, some doubted. Do you see that little phrase? Some doubted. And that word means to be of two minds. It means to be divided, to, to believe, but also not to believe at the same time, wavering back and forth, And what's the opposite of doubting? Well, it's right there, too, in that same verse. Some doubted and some worshiped. Now, eventually, we know that all of these people, even the ones who doubted, became worshipers because we know how their lives changed. We know what their lives looked like in the coming decade or two or three. They all became worshipers, and it was their worship that fueled their mission, which is why we spent so much time talking about what God is like. God is Trinity. He is both great and good. He is Alpha and Omega, so that as we see him as he is and begin to worship him, our worship too would fuel our mission towards the things he's called us to. Amen? And so listen to Charles Wesley yet again as he opines. I think it really he does. He's opining when he says, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, right? One tongue is not enough. If I could only have a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the anthem of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread to all the earth abroad the honors of your name. Amen. When we worship him like that, we will live on mission with him as he's called us to. And so let's pray and ask him to do that great work in our hearts, even as we come to the table this morning. So, Father, would you do just that in us? Come and make us worshipers, that as we worship you we might join with you in this great work that you intend to do in the world what a privilege that you would so constitute us that you would make us and then redeem us that we might be participants in this great this great undoing of evil in the world and this great remaking of all things into something more beautiful than we can possibly imagine would you come now and send the holy spirit to us awaken in us the gifts and the passions That would lead to that great work, we pray. Even as we come to this table now, in Jesus' name, amen. It's another one of the verses that I pray on a daily basis. Jesus said in John 15, it's very humbling. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. He desires for us to be fruitful people, and so he sends us. That's what this last part of our service is, is a sending. He's called us here, so he can call us from here to go into the places he sends us. I don't know where he might be sending you this week. I would ask you to pray for me. This week, he's actually sending me to India. I leave Tuesday to go to do a prayer seminar there for See Jesus uh, for three days, and we have missionaries in London. The, the Scruggs are there in London, and then the Savants are in um, Scotland, and so I'm building in time with both of them on each side. So pray for my family while I'm gone uh you miss a lot in a week even you know kids are coming home for spring break and i won't be here it's kind of sad but jesus is worth it that little sacrifice he's worth all this but pray just i haven't done it in a while i'm a little nervous so he's sending me there pray for me but wherever he's sending you we're praying for you as well uh and no matter whether it's you're going to india or you're just going across the street or you're going and waking up and doing tomorrow the same thing you did the day before and the day before and the day before there's the promise of benediction. Uh, that he will be with you even to the end of the age. And so receive these words of promise. May they energize you towards the calling that he's given to your life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.